Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, on Wurundjeri country, and broadcast to stolen lands across this continent on the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. There are more than 50,000 abandoned mines in Australia, and around 75% of mines close unexpectedly or without proper site rehabilitation plans. The Australian Conservation Foundation and the Mineral Policy Institute have released a report highlighting what they characterise as systematic and structural failures in the regulation of mine closure and rehabilitation. Dave Sweeney is the National Nuclear Free Campaigner with the ACF, and he spoke to Kevin and Adrian on 3CR's City Limits program. ACF uh, was, has been involved in a, in a call, Kevin, um, that uh, whoever forms national government, and that's now obviously um, the coalition, um, in, in the first 100 days commits to addressing what is a major unresolved national issue. We've got 50,000 legacy mines in Australia, 50,000, um, which range from small to massive. And their issues range from reasonably simple and able to be remediated with some earthworks through to profound and highly complex, wicked problems, deeply contaminating and long-lived. 50,000 legacy mines um, and the national and state regulatory regimes that are meant to address these, the national and state regulators uh, that are meant to keep an eye on things and rehabilitate things, um, they're just not working. It's, it's a major problem. 75% of mines in Australia, Kevin, they close earlier than anticipated. They close often in an unplanned way. And so we have this, uh, this real culture of um, let's rush to approve Let's rush to cut the ribbon and have the media release that says this will be this many jobs. But then when the commodity price falls, when the company financing falls, when uh, situations change, when costs increase, when it's no longer profitable or no longer flavour of the month, we have an increasing culture of, of the mining sector cutting and running and transferring uh, private profit into public cost with the shareholders and taxpayers, not shareholders, taxpayers, punters, community and country having to pick up the cost of failed mining projects. Mm. Dave, they, they do pay some sort of deposit, don't they, um, um, to um, for, for this sort of work? But I know you and others have been saying that that, the, that just doesn't go anywhere near the real cost in many cases. Yeah, there's, there's two sorts of forms. Sometimes they pay money up front. That's very infrequent. Most often they pay a bond, um, and you're exactly right. There's, there's real problems with it because the whole financial system around the, uh, the clean-up and the money that's meant to be there to ensure that a site can be rehabilitated adequately, Kevin, it's, um, it's all commercial and confidence. So you don't get the figures. It's really hard to get any hard figures to do any hard analysis and assessment. Where we have had figures in the past through different ways, um, the, the, invariably, the amount that's put aside doesn't come within a bull's roar of what is needed. Um, and particularly uh, what happens is that there is a promise, a, a small bond. Um, it's really hard to, to get the details of that. There's a lack of accountability and a lack of, of transparency. Um, and then 
it's just not enough money. It's just not enough money to clean up. Like one example that's happening at the moment is at the old Rum Jungle Mine near Bachelor, south of Darwin, a uranium mine that was mined in the 50s and 60s. Now, that was then Consink Rio Tinto, CRA, which is Rio Tinto. Yeah. And, um, and they cleaned up and said, job done and all good. And yet it wasn't. The mine is still an absolute basket case. It is leaking sulphides and radioactive material and heavy metal into the East Finnis River. It is continuing to be a running sore, literally. It is continuing to be a source of great concern and distress to Aboriginal traditional owners. And just recently, um, another $10 million. Now, that's a paltry amount, but that's $10 million to just identify to fund some studies into what is the extent of the problem. Now, mining finished there decades ago, and another $10 bucks was signed off by Canberra just in the last couple of months to try and get a sense of what is the scale of problem. And it's happening right around the country. We've spoken about, obviously, in the past, we've spoken about MacArthur River in the Gulf Country, and there's mm. massive problems there. We've spoken a lot about Ranger Mine, which is coming to the end of its life, um, a Rio Tinto uranium mine in Kakadu that many listeners know about, um, and that is facing major issues and major problems. And we can see a real trend where the industry does rip and ship and then it does cut and run. And it's a real concern for ACF yeah. and others, Kevin, at the moment. There might People might be aware of a story running right now, actually, that illustrates this trend of fire sales. We've got Rio Tinto again putting up a massive coal mine in Queensland, Blair Affol Mine, up for sale to a, a, a two-penny company. You couldn't even call them a two-penny company. They're $150 million bucks in debt already. They're just a little company that's pretty much a shelf company. And Rio Tinto is seeking to sell Blair Affol, its licence, its permits, all its infrastructure, all its equipment and vehicles for $1. And all its responsibilities, one assumes. All its responsibilities, you're exactly right. So as the industry starts tanking, as the profitability starts falling, it's time to take a step sideways. We say goodbye to the trucks, but we also say goodbye to the rehab requirements, mm. to the expectation of clean-up, et cetera, et cetera. What, and what? It's, a, it's a real concern, this sort of um, this sense of the lack of transparency, the lack of effective action and regulation and the lack of real accountability across the mining sector. What does the law say about the responsibilities to clean up? Well, the law says that you must clean up. It says in different ways. There's, there's different levels of, um, of uh, criteria. There's different, uh, uh, if you like, assessment standards. And, and in some cases, it's really high. The highest one that I'm aware of, um, Kevin, is the one that is facing Rio Tinto and Energy Resources of Australia in Kakadu at the Ranger Mine, where they must clean up the Ranger project area to a quality and all the level that it could be incorporated in the surrounding Kakadu World Heritage Region. Now, that's a very high standard. Um, many places are nowhere near as high as that. They say things like as, as far as practical, as far as reasonably achievable. Other places have uh, more specific criteria in relation to impacts on ground and surface water, no more than this many parts per billion of whatever the contaminant happens to be. It does vary a bit. But by and large, the, the overall framework is, look, we can't just leave a, a, a running sore anymore. We've got to clean up. And so it, there's, there is some sense, which is good, that there is an obligation to clean up. What's missing is the capacity to clean up, 
the clarity as to what level and the accountability as to who does it, and then the recourse if they don't. And they're the big things that are missing. It's like, it's like um, you know, without those things, without the real dollars, without the real brunt, without the real ability to demand and require that the mining company that made the mess cleans the mess, um, the rest is some good words on paper. Now, it's useful. It's a start to have some good words on paper. It gives you somewhere to start with. It gives you a hook to hang on to to try and get the game improved. But at, at the moment, there is a vast lack of clarity, capacity, commitment to make a difference. And like I say, we have 50,000 running sores and there's more being dug every day and it is failing on a national and state level. So we need to have a genuine look Take the politics out of it and have a genuine look. And the mining sector should actually embrace this, Kevin. They should embrace it because they need more and more to prove and earn and hold their social licence. And they are failing to do so. And if they walk away from this, which admittedly is a massive and complex challenge, then they're walking away from any credibility of being a responsible community stakeholder or player. And they're just being exposed for what so many of them sadly are which is not interested in communities or country, interested in the triple bottom line, which is pounds, dollars and euros. You're listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. And we're speaking with Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation about mine rehabilitation. I'm almost so angry just hearing this sort of thing. It's just the, the same story around whether it's um, forest, you know, Victorian forestry or or um, mining across Australia that the it's the you know social social subsidy of, of corporations again and again. Mm. And you know, of course, and 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 what really annoys me is even people who who talk about being liberal or part of that conservative um, background, if they actually held to their values, they wouldn't wouldn't approve this stuff because they would. It's it's an asset of all of Australia, and if people want to use it, they have to pay a fair price for it. And if they can't afford to do it, then they don't mind. As simple as that. And again and again, we just see whether it's you know logging of water catchments in Victoria or or, or mining, it, it, uh, people transferring wealth from our nation into the pockets of corporations and the investors of those yeah. people. Yeah. You are spot on the money, Adrian. And look at the, the sometimes I think you know you see sometimes a a Murdoch press piece or a beat-up tabloid TV piece about the one, the, the tiny major, minority of, of public housing that might get trashed or might get abused, and, and then it gets pumped up and shown, and here's the damaged house, and this was paid for by the taxpayer, and let's throw these bludgers out sort of stuff. When what is happening institutionally on a massive scale across our nation and across our planet is that resources that are public publicly owned and people owned and that are essential to the continuation of the quality of life are being strip mined literally for in the most crass way for the most narrow of sectoral interests and in a way that sterilizes options for other people for all time now from if you're into the market if you're into conservatism if you're into a sense of thinking long all these things that are claimed, then you would act to stop this behaviour. It is short-term, selfish, destructive, counterproductive to intelligent patterns of life. So we just need to, you know, keep 
um, snapping, I reckon. It's it's a little bit like, you know, the, the watchdog against um, a, a, a significant and rapacious industrial sector. We need to keep snapping and highlighting and actually showing that, that this sort of behaviour, like passing off an asset for a dollar, is clever for a company. It's not clever for a country. Yeah. And, and poisoning our water, poisoning our water in the driest continent on earth is a recipe for disaster. Or even redirecting our waterways, because the MacArthur River, of course, they overrode the local Indigenous opposition and redirected the river, but I presume rehabilitation wouldn't involve putting it back where it was in the first place. Well, right, happening right now is, is the traditional owners are completely and consistently seeking a comprehensive and costed closure plan, and they're calling for that river to be put back. But no one's, no one's talking that at, at mm. senior levels of government or company. And there is this real gap. Like, some regulators are, you know, trying to do their best in constrained circumstances. Other regulators are either completely under-resourced or else deeply compromised. And we need to give our regulators some teeth. We need to give our industry clarity and an expectation that if they don't perform, they won't be able to produce. They just not... They don't get a licence if they don't meet their conditions. And we need to give people and communities confidence that they won't be sacrificed, their country won't be sacrificed to um, a short-term ability by a politician to announce that this is good for jobs and dollars and we support development. Because development can't be... Jobs and dollars can't come. They can't be sustained. If you are ripping up and literally undermining the assets that support, you know, a continued quality of life and a continued healthy ecology. You can't keep it up. Yep, and I think this is going to be clearly going to be an ongoing and uh, an increasing problem, so we'll keep on top of it. But just before we wind up, Dave, you did say you also wanted to raise some issues arising out of the South Australian Uranium Royal Commission. Well, there's an interesting one. If we're talking about if we're talking about short-term versus long-term thinking, there's an extraordinary. Just to flag quickly, I suppose, with you, the the listeners, Kevin, that right now in South Australia, there's been a a very pro-nuclear royal commission set up by the state government, which is reported, and it looked it was tasked with looking at ways of expanding the nuclear industry in South Australia and seeing whether that could be a way out of South Australia's economic difficulties. It came up and said uranium mining nuclear power, all those things are either not worth it, don't work, not competitive. The one area where it did uh, say let's take this further was the old adage of there's money in muck and it said let's look. We've got got, um, remote areas and a lot of the world's got high level radioactive waste that it can't find a home for. Let's provide that home. So there's an active push on now in South Australia by quite a, um, a creepy collusion and collection of academics, political players, international consortia, the like, to explore having South Australia host forever one-third of the world's high-level radioactive waste. Um, And it's a significant um, issue which is being very carefully managed by the Weatherall government and and advanced as a conversation um, as a debate sort of thing, but it's very stage-managed. Um, and that's an issue that's happening under the radar that has profound implications for all time for all Australians. Not, it's not an issue just for Adelaide. A third of the world's high-level radioactive waste 
coming into a South Australian port to be trucked somewhere in remote northern South Australia is um, one that we should be, as a nation, having on the radar and having a discussion about because it ties in with this whole sort of theme of be it toxic waste management in the cities, be it poor mining um, rehabilitation and legacy mines in regional and rural remote Australia, and now this idea of, like, let's bring in the world's worst waste and keep it somewhere that we see as sort of a radioactive terra nullius, which it clearly is not. And it's a question and linking themes here about respect, about, uh, you know, environmental integrity and about the ability to think long, not just the short-term promise of the dollar. Look at the danger signs, not just the dollar signs. And how can you effectively price something that's going to have to be stored for hundreds of thousands of years? Like, it's just impossible to price that. It it is impossible to price that, and and a whole range of economic critiques of the process, including from some conservative economists, have said these uh, these assertions, they they can't be made, they they can't be justified. So there's also a massive upfront in the order of $300 million upfront public expenditure before there'd be a cent of other revenue. And that's before you're talking about cultural impacts on Aboriginal people whose land this would clearly be on and who are concerned and strongly opposed in many cases. And it's before you talk about health impacts, mm. security, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also this thing of like that when it comes to the promise of the dollar, everything's for sale. And I think for, for you know, groups like the ACF, for yourselves, for many listeners, it's not like that. There's things that aren't for sale. There's things we value. There's things we respect. And there's things that we don't put a price on. And it, one is we don't have a race to the bottom with either how we how we dig or where we dump. But Dave, even if you look at their argument, the the Royal Commission report, looking at the economics of it, the returns were very slight for the outlays. Anyway, it didn't seem to add up. Yeah, look, it's it's very overblown. They they're, they're based on some pretty heroic um, assessments. Um, mm, very heroic, I would have thought. No, yeah. Very heroic. They're based on the on the fact that they're saying that no one else would do the same. That there would be a perpetual Australian monopoly of, of uh, you know, uh, as a location for radioactive waste storage. There's a whole range of things um, that that don't stack up. Um, and the other thing about it is that, you know, as, as you know, Kevin, there's been seven decades of commercial nuclear power production in the world and some companies, some countries and companies that have put considerable money, massive amounts of money, massive amount of technical and political uh, uh, capital into addressing and advancing this issue. Now, the role of nuclear power is in steady-state decline. It is it is now half that. Its contribution to the global energy mix is now half that of renewables. And uranium's and price has crashed. Uranium's price is crashed. The market is, is shrinking. The price has absolutely gone south after Fukushima and the Australian uranium sector employs well less than a 1,000 people. Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation. Bali is a top tourist destination for many Australians and this mass tourism has caused many environmental impacts. But one particular development has got locals up in arms. It's the fight over Benoa Bay, a Balinese-led backlash utilising art and music to stop the most ambitious tourism development project this island has ever seen. 
Nicole Kirby reports from Bali. Bali's music scene hasn't always been so political. But news that a Dubai-style development will be built on what was once, before the plans were approved, a conservation area, has galvanised the island's musicians and artists in a new way. This song by Nostris was inspired by the Tolak Reklamasi, or the Reject Reclamation Movement. If the project goes ahead, 700 hectares of Benoa Bay in Bali's south will be reclaimed to make way for a string of artificial islands, complete with resorts, shopping centres, theme parks and high-end apartments. Chopok, vocalist and guitarist for the Bali band Bullhead, says it will be something of an abomination. They will put culture on the island, but it will be a plastic culture. We have real culture. It is buildings and people. They have artificial culture. They claim that all of Bali is there, like Indonesia Miniature Park or Walt Disney. Like Walt Disney. Since the project was first approved by the Indonesian government in December 2012, a mass movement has been gathering steam. Across the island, vibrant banners are strung up at intersections and on street corners, calling for the Balinese to tolak reklamasi, or reject reclamation. Demonstrations take over the street on a regular basis, music concerts and art events are organised around the campaign, and now communities across the island are compiling an album of protest songs sung by local children. Chopok says it's crucial people understand what the development means. This movement is purely to save your home. The developer promises heaven, but the surroundings will be destroyed and they will make hell all around it. To find out more, I've come to Taman Bacha, a permaculture garden, library and cafe, and also a favourite haunt of the guys behind the Tolak Reklamasi movement. People using art to move and fight against the government, against the investor. We make uh, even using art, even music, ogogo and drawing, mural art, street art. And the other youth people who doesn't know about it uh, become interesting. What is this? What are they talking about? That's why our, our movement growing up, growing up and still growing up until now. That's Adi Apriyanta Palma, a Balinese student and activist. He and many others are imagining a different future for Bali, one where rampant overdevelopment can't go on forever. Ketut Putra, the Vice President of Conservation International in Indonesia, explains what many on the island would like to see. Even though we as a Balinese, we don't really reject development, we love development, but we need to design the development that we want that really minimizing or even no impact at all for our environment, for our own culture. The developer behind the project is Wahana Bali International, TWBI, which is controlled by influential Indonesian businessman, Tommy Wanata. The company has promised that the project will be environmentally responsible and culturally sensitive in an area with at least 70 sacred Hindu sites. But the environmental impacts of building artificial islands, says Katut, will be devastating.
From the perspective of fisheries, the reclamation may potentially very much reduce or even fully alter the entire of coastal habitats for 80% of marine species that we have in Bali because they use this Banua Bay as the nursery when or reproduction cycle for those species. Since the Tolak Reklamasi movement gained traction, musicians like Sonny Bono from the band Nymphia have been warned by police not to mention the project at their gigs. There's been other instances too of authorities trying to control the message. Discussions of the development banned at an international event in Bali and peaceful demonstrators beaten. But Sony refuses to be intimidated, despite what he says is an overwhelming culture of silence in Bali. We call it Koh Ngomong in Balinese language, Koh Ngomong. Koh Ngomong is, uh, in English, I don't want to talk about it, Koh Ngomong. So it's becoming our habit. With us musicians, uh, we try to break the habit, you know. Maybe if we use our language, music, we can break that habit. The protest has largely fallen on the shoulders of Bali's youth, with older Balinese initially reluctant to speak out. An estimated 80,000 Balinese were killed in the communist massacres of 1965 to 66, and those events still loom in living memory. Adi explains. We have a 65 history that's make all people like silence with the government, like don't want to fight against the government. Everything government say. The old people only say yes, okay, yes, and okay, yes, and okay. Yeah, they're afraid. They don't want the history repeats again. The young people try to fight against that, you know. Despite that, a long-awaited change came earlier this year when many of the older generation added their weight to the campaign. Entire villages are now also getting on board. As the campaign enters its fourth year, Balinese are pressuring the Indonesian president to step in and put a stop to the project. If the environmental impact assessment, now under review, is accepted, construction will be given the final green light. Most agree that this is a make-or-break year for Bali's future. Nicole Kirby, reporting from Bali. And you can hear more from Nicole on Asia Calling a weekly English-language program from Radio KBR Jakarta. You can find all their shows on SoundCloud. And thanks also to 3CR's City Limits program for the interview with Dave Sweeney. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Australia's weekly environmental justice program for community radio. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, on Wurundjeri Country. You can contact us on 03 9419 8377 or via email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or on our Facebook page. I hope you can tune in next week for more Earth Matters.
You've just been listening to a podcast produced at 3CR Community Radio. 2016 marks 40 years that 3CR has been bringing you independent community voices and we're asking you, our listeners, to keep us going for another 40 years by donating to our Radical Radiothon this June 6th to the 19th. This year, we need to make $220,000. So any amount you can afford makes a big difference. Call us on 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for supporting Community Radio.